All right, if y'all could all please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading in Psalm 62, verse 5 through 12. Uh, in the blue Bibles there, in the seatbacks, it's going to be on page 274. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, take those. Uh, they're a gift freely given uh, from Northridge. So, all right, hear the word of the Lord. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That says God's word. Well, let's pray over the word as it's been delivered to us. Father, we thank you for the truth of your scripture that you've given to us to reveal yourself, to reveal your heart, to show us, God, your great power, your great sovereignty, your great supremacy, Lord, that is unchallengeable, that's unquestionable, that's indisputable. God, we thank you for that. And God, we pray that as we are so often guilty of, as I said earlier, just kind of being casual and overly familiar with you. Lord, I pray that we would see you today as El Shaddai, as the Almighty God, as the Omnipotent One who, as Revelation says, reigns. And so, Lord, we ask that. We ask that you would open our hearts, give us the capacity to hear Give us the capacity to understand. Give us the capacity to to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, help me to be an effective communicator of truths that are too high and too wonderful for me. I pray that I would not lead any astray by personal opinion or bias, but that I would speak according to the text that's been given to the church and, and according to no other thing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, for if you're new here, if this is maybe your first Sunday, we're in a series on the attributes of God. And last week, we talked about two closely related attributes of God that are are just, uh, 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 we're just able to distinguish them from one from another. And that would be the supremacy of God, meaning that God is, uh, is the first of all beings. He, he is above all other beings and the sovereignty of God that, 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 that supremacy naturally implies a authority that is also above all unquestionable, authoritative. Um, and so when we talked about that, we concluded that since God is the one and only supreme being, that he must by necessity, be completely sovereign. And we defined God's sovereignty as the exercise of his supremacy. You see how they're closely related there? 
It would be one thing, we said last week, for us to imagine that a being exists somewhere out there that uh, that was supreme, that, that was the supreme being. But if that being didn't have all authority to exercise, however, and for whatever he willed, then that would cancel out his supremacy. He could not be supreme under those circumstances. And worse than that, he could never, ever, ever be called God. It just couldn't happen. See, sovereignty speaks. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're primarily talking about God's authority, his supreme right to intervene in every aspect of the affairs of everything that he has created. Rocks and trees, birds and bees, you and me. And there is nothing, you should recall, whether we're talking about things in heaven or on earth or anywhere else, there is nothing that he hasn't created. So what does that tell us? His sovereignty means that he has the authority to intervene anywhere he so chooses. Sovereignty insists that the rule of God over everything is absolute. It is non-negotiable. It's unchallengeable. It is never diminishing. It is never increasing and it's never lost. Now, here's the question. How can fallen creatures fallen humans like you and I, be confident of the rule of God in all things. Well, there's three primary ways. We talked about some of this last week. First, we're told of God's sovereignty in the scriptures by God himself who cannot lie. Second, we see his sovereignty everywhere in all of creation. And thirdly, we see it active in in all of human history, both in the most fruitful times of human history and also in the darkest times of human history. We see God's sovereign hand uh, just uh, exercising his power in the affairs of men. Sovereignty throughout the scripture is attributed to all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, we're told, does according to all his good purpose. Over and over again, we're told that the Holy Spirit operates sovereignly in his application of God's will, God's decree. But the Son, you'll recall, also says about himself in Matthew 28, 18, right before he ascends to heaven, he says, all authority, how much authority? All authority is given to me in both heaven and on earth. We often confuse, however, another concept. So we have supremacy, which leads us to believe in God's sovereignty. But when we come to sovereignty, we often have two barely distinguishable concepts, two barely distinguishable attributes, but they must be distinguished in order to understand clearly. So we confuse the idea of authority or sovereignty with the concept, the idea of power. Last week we we sought to establish the fact of God's absolute authority, and this week we're going to ask ourselves the question, does God have and does God exercise absolute power? Can God back up his sovereignty by power and accomplish all of his purpose? Now, the quick answer, I if I went down the row and asked every single one of you, would probably be yes, of course. But sometimes you'll see, we all do this, I do this, we act as though that's not true. Can I prove that to you? I'll prove it to you real quick. This won't take long at all. How many of you are guilty at any time in the past since the day of your birth of worry? Raise your hand. So 
What we're saying when we, when we acknowledge our, that we just are so subject to our circumstances is that we may believe the concept of God's sovereignty that God can, but we don't believe that God will, that God does not have the power sometimes to execute His plan. So we feel like we're victims of a world of, as I said last week, of politicians and diseases and, and wars and all kinds of things. We feel like we're, we're uh, the victims of those things because we might believe in God's sovereign authority, but we don't, we're not so sure that God always exercises sovereign power. Everybody with me? So, in short, is the visible exercise and record of the, ex- of the exercise of His power in creation and redemption true proof of His sovereignty? Now, last week we said that God is sovereign because He is supreme. In other words, if He were not supreme, He could never be sovereign. And this week, we want to add to that fact that if He is truly sovereign, then He must, by necessity, be truly powerful. His sovereignty, what I'm saying to you, knows no bounds, and therefore His power must be equally boundless. Thomas Watson, the the Puritan, points it out like this. He can do what he will. Now there's more to that quote, but just think about that one for just a moment. He can do what he will. How many of you have ever willed to do something that you were unable to do? For one reason or another. Maybe it wasn't even your fault. But God has never once experience that. He can do what he will. Watson goes on to say, his power is as large as his will. For him to be God, could it be otherwise? What a difference between the essence of the creator and the essence of all of the creatures. As I said, how often is our will frustrated because we lack the power to accomplish it? Or because our limited power that we exerted to accomplish our will has now been depleted. But guess what? That is never the case with God. God always has enough power and much more in surplus to accomplish whatever it is that He wills to do. We have a word that describes our understanding of the power of God. And that word is one you're probably familiar with. Omnipotence. I love etymology and looking at how words are constructed. Omni is the Latin word for all. It can mean every in numerical terms or the whole uh, uh, or the or something of every kind that it's all inclusive. So it's omni. The, the second word that this is made of, omnipotentum. Potentum is Latin for mighty or very powerful, possessed of inherent strength. So we put them together, omnipotent, omnipotentum. What do we have? We have all, all all-inclusive of power. He has all power. This word is similar, and I think this is a really important connection, to the way God identified himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 17.1, addressing Abraham, he says, I am am God Almighty. What does he mean when he says he's almighty? He's saying, I am omnipotent. I have all might. I have all power. This is the Hebrew, as I said in my prayer, El Shaddai. And El Shaddai means God Almighty. A.W. Tozer said this, 
Sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must have power. And to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. The omnipotence of God means that God is the sole possessor of all power available and exercised anywhere. It belongs to Him and to Him alone. Now, I can see the resistance to what I just said. I get it. I understand it. You may protest and you may point out to me quite accurately that tyrants have power over their subjects. And that even we in our rebellion have the power to resist God's correction and His promptings. In a more noble sense, I hope that all of you parents have and exercise power over your children. The police in our community, the judges in our community, have power over lawbreakers. So how then can we say that God has all power? That He's not just potent, but He's omnipotent. That he has it all. How can we say that? See, the same truth applies here when we speak of his omnipotence that applies to the other of God's communicable attributes. God is the source. This means he's the fountain from which all power that is available to his creature flows. What is derived from him is only ever delegated to us. Sometimes it's delegated to us for our benefit, for our rescue, and sometimes it's delegated to us. So as we read this morning in Psalm 51, God will be justified when he judges. It's only delegated to us. One day it will return to its source when you and I are laid in the dust. So why boast of your power? Because you really have none. There's an omnipotent God that, that by the word of his mouth controls everything. Again, if, if you'll just allow me one more Tozer quote. He says, God has delegated his power to his creatures, but being self-sufficient, he cannot relinquish anything of his perfections. And since power is one of his con- uh, perfections, he has never surrendered the least iota of his power. He gives But he never gives away. I love that. And and what do you see how important of a concept in Christian thought this is? Let me prove it to you. Let's fast forward to the very end of our story as the people of God. Go almost to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, there's 22 chapters in Revelation. Revelation 19, we see the saints of God around the throne of God, and they are putting on an epic worship service. It is loud in there. This is how John describes it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Not like a big stadium, but like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And they were crying out. Now pay careful attention to what they're crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So when it comes to the end of the story, what is the church celebrating? The omnipotence, the almightiness of God. 
That's how important it is. That's, that's the, that is both the beginning of our story, the end of our story, and everything that fills the in-between. Is that God is sovereign, God is supreme, and God is almighty, omnipotent God. For God to forfeit any of His power would be for Him to forfeit Godhood. And that cannot ever be. Where do we see God's power at work as the expression of His sovereignty? Well, similar to His sovereignty, since they're so inseparably connected, um, we see it in creation. We see it in His intervention in the affairs of men throughout history, and mostly in redemption, which what was redemption? It was the ultimate show of God's willingness to intervene for us. First, who can deny the evidence of God's sovereignty that was proved in the working of his mighty power at the time of creation. Think about this. Again, I hate what happens to us as fallen human beings. Something that is so amazing that every time we consider it should should lay us out, should just blow our minds. We've become so familiar with it, it doesn't even it doesn't even raise an eyebrow with us anymore. But when God created He had no tools to work with at all. Nothing. He had no matter to work upon, but instead he created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Think about what we're saying here. God spoke. And time and space and matter appeared where none had previously existed. Everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing. The Psalms capture this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. But see, it's not just, that's, that's, many of you are fine with that, you're comfortable with that, but you're not thinking deeply enough about God's mighty power revealed in creation. Because it's not just in the origination of the universe that we see the power of God, but in the daily preservation of it. Who is it that keeps a baby alive in its mother's womb for nine months. Who is it that keeps the tides at bay saying in Job that he commands them saying you can go this far and no farther? Who is it that causes us to experience consistent summers and winters and springtimes and harvest? Or if you live in Texas, summer and fall. But we're so secularized. We've been so influenced by things like Darwinian theory. We're so secularized in our thinking that we rarely give a, a thought these, to these miracles which daily surround us. Every one of you woke up this morning. That's a miracle. By the command of Almighty God. When you woke up, I've said this before, but it, it, you know, we're not sitting here at almost 11 o'clock and going, where is the sun this morning? It's come up every day for generations and, and millennia, but it's not here today. No! 
Because the whole universe is sustained by the almighty, the omnipotent power of God. And when we do this, when we, when we just give no thought to these miracles, we deny God the glory He so richly deserves, and we attribute the preservation of the world to so-called natural laws. I'm not anti, anti-science, I believe in natural laws, but who do you suppose wrote those laws? Impersonal laws are not what the Bible teaches. It says that God gives rains in their seasons. It says He leads out all the starry hosts into their places every night. It says He provides the beasts of the field with all their food. If so-called science tempts us to deny God and His glory, then let God be true and every man a liar. Second, we see God's work in the historical acts of intervention in earthly affairs. We see this most clearly, obviously, in the scriptures. Who was it that flooded the entire earth? Who was it that at another time divided the sea so that his people could pass through it on dry ground? And who was it that sent that same sea crashing down on the heads of his enemies? Who was it that made the sun stand still in the sky so that Joshua could continue the Lord's fight? Who was it that caused the oil to pour and pour for the benefit of a poor old widow? Who caused the walls of Jericho to fall down flat and healed Naaman's leprosy? Who shut the mouths of hungry lions so that they could not devour his man Daniel? And who guided an arrow shot at random into the heart of wicked King Ahab? That's the Old Testament, Iron Age, Bronze Age stuff. But in the New Testament, do we not see Jesus commanding sicknesses to be healed, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak? Do we not see him commanding a a, a, a a league of a legion of demons to enter a herd of swine. Do we not see him commanding storms to cease? Does he not multiply bread and fishes to feed five thousand hungry souls? Who is it that does all of this if it is not the omnipotent one? God Almighty, El Shaddai is his name. But see, his omnipotence hasn't only been seen in flannel board stories that were told to us in the Sunday schools of our younger days. Who here, who is a believer, a true believer, would say, you've never seen God answer a prayer to heal a body, to provide for a need, to comfort a broken heart, to soften the heart of an enemy? Listen to me. God Almighty, the Omnipotent One, El Shaddai, still intervenes in our lives to this day. When we think of God's intervention with His power, there's no greater example of His supremacy, sovereignty, and omnipotence than is seen in the salvation of the souls of the elect. His supremacy is seen in that He decreed their salvation Not only before the fall occurred, but even before the worlds were framed by his mighty word. 
Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, beginning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How has He blessed us? Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The salvation of his foreknown people wasn't God's response to a crisis that was created by the fall. Rather, it was the outworking of his eternal decree in power. His sovereignty is seen in that his purpose in electing a people for himself has been accomplished in full by Jesus through the cross. What he decreed before the foundation of the world has been fully accomplished and paid in full by Jesus. From the cross, Jesus declared as he died, Tetelestai, it is finished. John 10, 28, before those, that awful day, he says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. What is that but a sign of his sovereignty? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Did you get that? Talking about God's sovereignty here. Displayed in Christ. And what did he just tell us? That no one has the power to snatch them out of his hands. What delegated power can overcome the depth of true omnipotence? And you might say, well, the temporal power of sin. The temporal power of temptation The temporal power of the devil or even death itself poses an incredible threat to me. And if you say that, and if you believe that, you have not yet understood the gospel. Because the temporal power of sin, temptation, the devil, and even death itself falls victim before the Almighty One. God is mightier than your sin. God is mightier than the temptation that plagues you. God is infinitely mightier than the devil that harasses you. And God will prove himself to be much stronger than the death that Sunday snuffs you out. As he resurrects your body for his glory. All power returns to him and to him alone. In the establishment of God's unquestionable supremacy and his unyielding sovereignty, his power is seen in the way he accomplished the purpose of salvation. That's where we see the power. Who but almighty God could transform a bloody cross into the highest emblem of hope? Who but he could make the gaping mouth of the tomb a threshold that leads to eternal life? For all who would believe in his name. Hebrews tells us that the cross, though something shameful and to be despised, was endured by cross, by Christ. Why? For the joy that was set before him on the other side of it. What joy are we talking about? Well, the joy of completing his work. The joy of glorifying his father. The joy of winning for himself a people that they might become sharers of his holiness. 
This is how Paul puts that same thought, 1 Corinthians one twenty two. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, and I hope you're among those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, listen to what he calls Christ here, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is he saying? Christ, if you've ever doubted the power of God and you said, I want to see the power of God, open your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christ is God's power, his omnipotence, his almightiness personified. So the text that I chose for this morning shows what a comforting application the omnipotence of God has for the believer. If you would, open your Bible again to Psalm 62. We began in in verse 5 today. And let's look at it again together. Verse 5, David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We rest our souls in El Shaddai. To us, he is a mighty rock. He's a fortress, a refuge, our glory. He anchors us. He becomes our salvation. We have assurance that no matter what quakes around us, we will not be fatally shaken by it. And why do we have such confidence? Because he is omnipotent. He is the Almighty One. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, if God is for us, let's do that a little bit more enthusiastically, shall we? If God is for us, God engages all his boundless power for the eternal good of his elect. And therefore, like David, we command our troubled souls to wait. Not in wailing and trembling, but in peaceful silence. Because our hope is hidden in God alone. It's not hidden in the evolution of our circumstances. It's hidden in God alone. Jesus makes an incredible promise as he's teaching on prayer in Luke 18.7. He says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? We need not fear because God is well aware of everything that's happening to you right now. Every challenge you're facing, everything that you're going through, God is well aware of it. And more than that, he's using it for your sanctification. He's using it for your good. And more than that, he will not let it continue in perpetuity. Even if those troubles end only because the Lord ushers you into the next life, you will rest assured that that next life is one without pain or tears or death. They will come to a crashing end. We trust him as our impenetrable fortress against all assaults, Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He calls us in this text to cry out to him and to stand back and see his mighty salvation on our behalf. There's a place in Isaiah where it says, The Lord has made his arm bare. I love that passage. You know what he's saying there? 
When, when, you know, little boys are talking to their fathers, what do they say? They say, Dad, let me see your muscles. And God comes through and he goes, okay. He makes his arm bare and he shows his great strength on behalf of who? His children. He will show you his muscles when it comes time for, for a show of his strength, for his power to be revealed. What else is there in all of creation that can give us that kind of peace? There's nothing. Because, as we said earlier, nothing has any real power except the one who has all power. And he has aligned himself with his people so that he might employ his power on their behalf. Now this, of course, is not to say, this isn't a prosperity gospel church, there is no such thing. This, of course, isn't to say that everything will always work out in ways that we deem to be favorable in this life. But it certainly means that our suffering, our trials, our persecution, our tribulation, our tears, can't ultimately be devastating. What we have that is truly valuable cannot be stolen from us because God is its guardian. It, 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 this means that we will triumph in God in the end. Why? Because He has triumphed through Christ in us now. All of our ashes, the Psalms promise, will be turned, they'll be transformed into beauty. Now can unbelievers have such confidence, the strong, the wise, the wealthy in this life? Let's read on. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What is he saying? All those things are things that we think give us power. But there is none in them. Some are poor and suffering in sin. And this causes them to rail against God. It's not fair. And they make vain threats against him. I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, you're in for a huge surprise. You know why? You ever know why anybody anybody says something that stupid? You're not going to reign in hell. You know why? Because God reigns in hell. He is almighty. He is omnipotent. He has all the power everywhere, even in hell. And so they make vain threats against him and accuse him of cruelty. But others, on the flip side of the coin, are so confident in their worldly wealth that they give no thought to God, his holiness, his demands. They view themselves as untouchable by him. Some will lie and cheat to resist God's power and his position as the omnipotent judge. Some look to the acquisition of wealth to give themselves meaning. For others, it may be fame or things, respect or strength. But David says when these things are laid in the scales the op- uh, and their opposite, God's limitless strength, they weigh nothing more than a breath. <sighs> Someone say, wait. They evaporate in an instant. And he goes on to say, the, the, here at the crux of what we're saying this morning, verse 11, once... God has spoken, and twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. 
And that you, O Lord, belong, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let me point out, hopefully, something obvious to you. God does not ever repeat himself. He did not look into the void and say, let there be light. I said, let there be light. No. He commanded and it was. He didn't ask twice at the entrance of Lazarus' grave for him to come out. He said, Lazarus, come forth and life re-entered Lazarus. This is what David means when he says, once God has spoken God has firmly established His power in His Word. This is a sign of His sovereignty, His omnipotence. But what does He mean when David says, Twice I have heard this. I don't know. This may be just confession time for me. I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced this in your own spiritual life. But God only speaks once. But unfortunately, I am incredibly dull of hearing. And I have to be reminded over and over again by returning to the word. The power belongs to God. God says once, power belongs to me, Mark. And I go, yeah, but God, what if? God, if this happens or that happens... If the right guy doesn't get elected, if there's another lockdown, if all this stuff happens. And God, through his word, tells me again, I've spoken once. Power belongs to me. Power is to his exercise in favor of his people. Power is his, rather, to exercise in favor of his people and against those who deny and curse him. Thomas Watson again says, He has the key of justice in his hand to lock up whomever he will in the fiery prison of hell. And he has the key of mercy in his hand to open heaven's gates to whomever he pleases. Nothing should speak peace to the Christian's heart like meditation on God's power. And nothing should cause the sinner's heart to tremble within him like meditation on God's power. One remembers, the Christian remembers, that God, to God belongs steadfast love, as David says. And the other, the sinner, remembers that God renders to each according to his work, whether good for faith or judgment for unbelief. So may the Spirit of God remind us daily of the immensity of the power of God. May we trust in its perfect working on our behalf. In times of manifest blessing, in times of persecution and loss and heartache and despair, may we see that his power was made manifest for us in the person of Jesus Christ, by whom he has purchased us and that he will never disown or forsake us. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we, God, we just stand once again in repentance and we recognize 
how little we have thought of your power, how little we've attributed to you. God, how we have thought that, Lord, we, we could, you know, figure out for ourselves how to uh, handle our problems and, and what would bring relief to our troubled souls. But God, you have called us to trust in you that you are the one to whom power belongs. Once you have spoken, power belongs to God. And so, Lord God, we pray that with the power that you have delegated to us, that we would daily give it back to you, saying like Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would that you would help us to reassign the power you give us for your glory, that you would manifest your power in our lives, both in temporal interventions and spiritual transformation, Lord, that you would just change us. And God, help us to remember as troubles may surround us this week, that God is strong, that God is powerful, that as those saints cry around your throne, hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Communion workers come and and, uh, prepare to serve. Um, We, uh, what can I say except for this sacred moment in our services, this sharing of the body and blood of Christ, um, just remind us of everything that we've sung, everything we've talked about this morning that Christ is the power of God, and he proved it on the cross. He proved it when he walked from the empty tomb. He he proved it when he ascended to the right hand of his Father to reign. And um, so we have every reason to celebrate this moment of covenant renewal um, as we come and share in these elements. So um, if you're here and you have not um, made a commitment to Jesus Christ, we... Um, we just encourage you to stay put. Um, this is a very sacred moment for those who believe, um, and it's not for those who don't. And we, we want you to believe. We want to share with you the truth of Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you, either myself or Pastor David, after the service. Um, but uh, we want you to, to just remain seated. The Bible teaches that those who eat and drink unworthily at this table um, eat and drink condemnation or judgment on themselves. And we don't want that for you. But we do want you to know Christ in reality. So come see us if, if you need to. And um, uh, But uh, if you would, the rest of you just come. Receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you so much for your show of power in Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, that he is the power of God, that he has demonstrated um, the perfect execution of the purposes of God on the cross and that we are the forever blessed benefactors of that obedience. And so we thank you for that, God. Help us to live in the light of your power. Help us to rejoice in it, give thanks for it, and proclaim it to everyone we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd place your hands on receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.